1: Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You, from HouseStuffWorks.com. Hello
2: and welcome
0: to the podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. And I'm going to start off this podcast by admitting something about myself. Oh, please do. Which is that when I was younger and uh, I found myself uh, no longer believing in the Christian faith that I had grown up with, um, I started pursuing, as do many young people and people who feel that big religion or no religion, they still want to feel a connection to something bigger than themselves. I got into tarot cards.
3: Oh, tell me more, Caroline. Yeah, so
0: I got one of those, like, cheesy, slick, glossy, terribly illustrated packs from who knows where, probably Hot Topic or something, Um I don't know. Is hot topics still around? I think they are, right? Probably. Um. I wonder if they're still as weird as they were when I was in high school. <laughs> yeah. Tweens need to be tacky somehow. Malgoths. Yeah. Uh. So I I got into it, and I found that it was a really great sort of satisfying way to feel like I was connecting with some spiritual force that I was part of some magical mystical a fantasy land that gave me some bit of control and insight into the world around me. And I just sort of summed up why people do tarot. Well, <laughs> did you, I'm curious though, did you, how often did you do it? Um, Maybe like once or maybe once a week, maybe like on the weekend or
3: something. And would it be used to help you figure out what to do? do with your life or or sort of reflect on things? I think
0: both. A lot of it had to do with like um, liking boys and wanting to do tarot about love. Um, But I did the whole nine yards, Kristen. I would like turn out the lights and light candles and like... Get in the zone and like breathe deeply and get real quiet internally and focus on my question, which was probably like to so and so like me is so and so gonna like me, uh, which is like the bulk of a lot of tarot questions in the modern era. And I'd lay out the cards in the Celtic cross formation. There's a bunch of different formations that you can do in tarot. And, and read the cards and figure out what was negative and what was positive and if they were inverted or right side up what that meant. And yeah, I literally can't remember any insight that it ever actually gave me or I thought that it gave me, but it was kind of a really fun way to pass the time. I was also big into runes at the time, which was the same deal. You put them in a sack and like you, it's like Scrabble tiles and you put your hands in there and you draw out some runes and you figure out what your, future is supposed to be or you figure out the answer to a question i'm surprised
3: i never got into runes that sounds right up my alley
0: well i even had i remember distinctly wearing my rune necklace to music midtown here in atlanta in 1997. Seventh grade for me um was it 97 (laughs) yeah i think it was 97 uh And I definitely like thought I was so effing cool because it was like a choker necklace. It was on, it was on like one of those black cords. It's so nineties, you know, I probably very hip today, little rune necklace. And, uh, I can't remember what it meant. It was something like very, you know, very like middle school self-centered, like independent or like uh, something. I'm a cool
3: person rune. (laughs) I don't even care about my curfew rune. (laughs) Right. After college, My roommates and I went through a tarot phase, but it was more a thing of a parlor game. Yeah. When we would all hang out, people would come over, have some beers, and be like, let's do tarot. Oh, my God. What's it mean? Yeah. Yeah. we're drunk. Yeah. (laughs) Yes.
0: (laughs) That is what it meant for people hundreds and hundreds of years ago, too. You and your friends were far more connected to the true roots of tarot than seventh grade Caroline was. I assure you.
3: Yeah, because uh, here's the thing about the history of tarot. It's a little bit of a letdown. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Because it really just started out as a game. And we've been making up the rules for tarot ever since. Yeah, oh
0: yeah. Oh, and so it's so um I don't know what word to use here, but I just I put my hands to my face and look real worried when I read like first person accounts of tarot card readers and like how seriously so many people take it. It's like a huge part of some people's lives. And I don't want to dismiss that part of your life, fair listeners, but there's there's literally no mystical meaning behind tarot. Um Like like Kristen said, it its meaning has changed over the centuries. It really did originate in the Islamic and Arabic world as just. It's just cards. The 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 fabulous people in the Middle East invented playing cards, and they were beautiful. They were hand painted. They were something that the wealthy had to pass the time, and so they were painted with all sorts of things that would be familiar to these people in their everyday lives. So there'd be architectural elements painted on there. Uh, later, there would be people or or items represented on the cards, but they were all meant to just play games, and so. Uh, these cards, of course, through trade, through military invasions, made their way to Europe. They've been used, uh, everything from games, like we said, to literary prompts for writers to the way we think of them now as tools for divination.
3: Although I do like, and not to get ahead of ourselves, but I do like how long we have been using tarot, even pre-divination phase, to uh, help us predict whether someone will like us back or not. <laughs> yes,
0: there was one Spanish deck that was meant to figure out the object of your affection in each suit. So like the cups or the wands or whatever, each suit of the deck corresponded to a different type of woman, either maidens, wives, widows or nuns. Always get the nuns. <laughs> <laughs> Always a nun, never a
3: maiden. <laughs> But tarot, as we think of it today, really got its start in Italy, I believe, around the 15th century. But again, it was nothing but a game at that time. And from Italy, it was exported to France and Germany. And, and tarot had no history as a game in English-speaking areas. It was introduced instead by occultists. So that's interesting, right? That little tidbit about
0: how... People in Italy, France and Germany were thinking of it as a game, even if it was if even if it did have a divination bent, it was still sort of a playful thing versus in England where they didn't get it until some <laughs> kind of shady occultists, as We'll get into mu- in greater detail much later in the podcast. They introduced it as an actual mystical, magical thing. So to give a brief rundown of tarot decks today, they've got 78 cards. 56 are the minor arcana or the suit cards. So like the, you know, seven of wands uh, and 22 make up the major arcana or trump cards. You've got four suits, swords, batons, cups and coins, each of which has an ace through a 10. In addition to the jack through king, uh, the major cards also have a fool, which is traditionally labeled as zero.
3: And today, of course, people read all sorts of meanings into tarot cards. So... For me, growing up in a very conservative home, tarot cards were seen as a tool of the devil. As they can (laughs) be. But then, of course, there are people who use tarot to predict the future. Uh, They see Some see it as a gateway to mystical beings or otherworldly knowledge. And then others use it more as a meditative device just to reflect and get more insight on yourself and also relationships. And tarot was something that came up in your conversation, Carol. Line a few months back in 2015 with author Jessica Crispin, who wrote The Dead Ladies Project. Yeah, she wrote The Dead Ladies Project. She also founded the
0: website Book Slut, and she's got a pretty cool tarot side business. She herself got into it as sort of a backup job while she was between gigs. And now reads tarot for people not as a way to like predict the future, but as almost sort of a literary inspirational device to help you sort of figure out your narrative or figure out what your own strengths are. Um, but let's let's dive in now and take a closer look at tarot's origins and evolution. And a lot of this is coming from a great article over at Collectors Weekly, which has some beautiful images of all of those cards from the Islamic world.
3: So we mentioned the 15th century, and it was between the 14th and 15th centuries that people started using cards for games and playful divination. Emphasis playful, And it was something called Mamluk game cards that were brought to Western Europe from the Middle East. And in the Islamic world, as Caroline mentioned, card playing was really something for the highborn. And these cards were just miniature pieces of art. They were often hand painted and uh, they would be scrawled with calligraphy. Whereas in Europe, They lost a little bit of their class (laughs) because you have printing technology, which did mean, though, that it became something that wasn't only exclusive to the wealthiest. More people could get their hands literally on these cards and paper products, but they probably weren't hand painted. But if you look at the Arabic calligraphy, they would often contain aphorisms or sort of mini fortunes such as, As for the present that rejoices, thy heart will soon open up. Oh, fingers (laughs) crossed. Or how about this? This takes a little darker turn. With a sword of happiness, I shall redeem a beloved who will afterwards take my life. Whoa, buyer beware. (laughs) Oh, boy. Oh, it doesn't sound like a good relationship. That sword of happiness will
0: get you every time. Yeah. So by the 1500s in Europe you've got these beautiful cards being used for literary exercises, so not too different from what Jessa Crispin is using it for herself. Uh, and games that are similar to Modern Day Bridge, and you get some more playful divination. So, Italian aristocrats were playing this game, Taroki Appropriati. Basically, you'd be dealt random cards and have to write poetic verses about other players based on the content and the imagery of those cards. And I love that Collectors Weekly compares it to an early version of M.A.S.H. Like, I'm going to live in a mansion with the Humvee and have Bobby as my husband. Oh, Bobby. I wanted Bobby. But this really evolved into a literary phenomenon. I mean, people were writing lots of stories and poetry
3: based on the cards that they were drawing. It also reminds me of, what's it called? Exquisite Corpse, where you start a story and then you fold a piece of paper until only the last sentence. Is revealed and you pass it around the person picks up the story and then, oh. and then it flows from there, but it's not a card game, although it should be. Um, but back to tarot pre-tarot decks start to develop as you have wealthy Italian families commissioning their own hand painted cards of triumph. Yeah. How boss is that to be like, <laughs> I am so rich. I'm going to have some cards of triumph made just for myself and they had the same suits as those Arabic Mamluk cards of cups, swords, coins and polo sticks <laughs> which would eventually become your wands or batons. Yeah, and of course they had the the
0: courts of kings and male underlings. We didn't have queens yet. Yes. So just that. Yeah. Wow. yeah. Go figure. Um And in the 17th century, we see the Tarot de Marseille originate. And this is one of the most common types of tarot decks ever produced. It was usually printed with wood blocks and colored in by hand with basic stencils. And it's worth noting that this is not one specific deck, but rather a style that's seen in France that would be copied a whole lot. So, of course, you know, once... It's out of the hands, or it's trickled down, I guess I should say, from the rich Italians all the way to France and Germany. That's when you start seeing decks like the Tarot de Marseille. But there was
3: some controversy, right? There was a bit of controversy. So there was a papis card. And papis, if that does sound to you like papal, you're right. A lady pope, though. Heck no. So, But of course, since we could not have a lady pope... She morphed into, depending on your deck, either Juno, the high priestess, or the Spanish captain. But in the case of the high priestess, the high priest counterpart would be the Pope. Yeah, He's like, I'm back. Well, I mean, so throughout these cards' history,
0: your imagery just depended on your worldview. I mean, there were tarot. So from the very beginning, tarot imagery was morphing to accommodate common beliefs at the time. But I love that in the Tarot de Marseille, there are some pretty cool lady imagery. Strength is a woman subduing a lion. The Empress is a pretty badass shield. Uh, you've got the Star, who's a naked lady pouring water. And I'm sure that there are tarot aficionados out there going like, oh, it's not what it is or it's not what it means, but I still love it. And then the woman on the world card in this particular tarot deck, honestly, to me, looks like she's standing inside a vagina. Uh The description... Says
3: otherwise, but but, almost as if she's birthing
0: herself. Yeah. Yeah. To me, that's that's
1: what I'm going with. And no one can tell me otherwise. This episode is brought to you by Snagajob. Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly
2: hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs.
1: Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to two four two four two
2: four to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life.
1: PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865.
2: Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank, a National Association, member FDIC. So then in the 18th century, we have the rise of mystical tarot,
3: but for surprising reasons. Yeah. So,
0: uh, oh, I, you know, this goes back to a lot of the ideas we talked about, Kristen, fair listeners, in our episode on witchcraft, because in that episode, we talked a lot about how it was men, elite male members of society, who were members of secret uh, Masonic societies and groups who got together and sort of in order to give their own organizations and themselves authenticity and credibility, they tried to link their made up organizational mythology with existing mythology about Egyptians and Greeks and Romans and that gave rise to a lot of our modern day ideas about witchcraft. And the same is true for tarot. So you've got to get a little context. In the 18th century, power structures across Europe were shifting from feudalism to capitalism. And you've got these mysterious, well, on purpose mysterious, they they made themselves mysterious and male hierarchy driven Freemasonry. These groups and their interest in the occult is on the rise. And as Mike Sosteric in A Sociology of Tarot points out, those secret society hierarchies reproduced and reaffirmed the patriarchy, unequal power relations and male hegemony. In other words, they were filling this power vacuum as positions of power shifted from being inherited. So rich people beget more rich people who are all in the powerful positions. Not that that doesn't exist, but you know what I mean? to being earned, powerful positions being earned through that Protestant work ethic and knowing the right people. And these secret societies were all about knowing the right people.
3: Well, and it's ironic that you just mentioned the the Protestant work ethic because part of the pathway to knowing the right people and getting an end with these societies and getting a leg up there for, you know, in your station in life had to do with getting a grasp of this occult Tara that they kind of made up. They developed as part of their mythology this connection between tarot cards and Egypt because intellectuals commonly believed ancient Egyptian writing and religion held insights into human existence. And so they took their tarot cards and linked that to ancient Egypt as a way of gaining credibility and authority rather than being like, here's this game we play and we kind of <laughs> made up what it means. Who wants to join us? It's so fun. Yeah, it was just
0: another way of being like, hey, we are the holders of the mystical, magical truth. You've got to go through us to get to the truth. And also what was so appealing about these cards for these rich white guys was that they were links to a way of life that was enjoyed by those rich, wealthy, uh highborn Italian families of the 15th century. I mean, the imagery itself is related to royalty and the elite. You've got those kings and queens and popes. And then the the great thing about tarot, and great may or may not be in quotes, is that the imagery is so easy to manipulate. The meaning behind the imagery is so easy to manipulate and so easy to tell other people that it means something. Um And, you know, like we talked about in our psychics episode, Kristen, it's just human nature to want to believe in this stuff. And, and I get it, but it's worth discussing how a lot of this magical belief system came out of a bunch of guys who were just trying to use these cards and imbue them with their own meaning in order to cement their fancy status.
3: Well, and to the point that they even created tarot decks with Egyptian imagery to only reinforce this made-up connection between the two. Um, And you have, though, two big names who are responsible for really cementing this mystical development of tarot, both of whom are French. You first have Antoine Court de Gébelin, who was a French writer, pastor, and Freemason. A real jack-of-all-trades there. And then you have even more famous teacher and publisher, Jean-Baptiste Aliette, who went by a pseudonym, which was just his last name, Aliette, backwards. Yeah, so it's,
0: it's a Atella. Atelia? <laughs>
3: Nutella. It's <laughs> Nutella.
0: Yeah, he went by Nutella. He invented Nutella. Uh, Nutella and Jebelin were the first to align the tarot with these mystical and divinatory properties. So, in 1781, in his nine-volume History of the World, which is quite impressive, uh, he didn't have Wikipedia or anything, uh, de Jebelin said that tarot was based on a holy book written by Egyptian priests and bought, brought to Europe by gypsies from Africa. So I'm like, I'm so impressed that in your history of the world, you managed to make so much of it up. Um Aliette, meanwhile, wrote his own book on the tarot and claimed that he learned divination with playing cards first, uh, but added his special Atelia card, the Nutella card, <laughs> Nutella. which, as in modern tarot, was meant to basically stand in for the person having his or her fortune read. Eventually, he switches over to using a quote unquote true tarot deck and publishes his own, which is one of the very first designs specifically for divination, not just for game playing, claiming, again, people, that it had secret wisdom passed down from ancient Egypt. I mean, c- w- people, stop making stuff up. Well, be- or just stop being so gullible. Yeah, oh, yeah, that, you know? that, that, that too. Um, but so, of course, because this is something of the elite, it makes sense that it would eventually trickle down and be considered real cool. Real cool. It's like, I don't know what's... Uh, hoverboards are real cool. Maybe they're trickling down. What's trickling down now? I don't know. Definitely she, hoverboards. Definitely. Have, definitely. But so tarot trickles down to the rank and file. And so by 1790, we get our first celebrity card reader. What, what? And she is a lady, hence the pronoun. <laughs> she is a lady. It's Mademoiselle Lenormand, or Marie Anne Adelaide Lenormand, who shows up in Paris claiming that she learned card reading again. From gypsies. And here's the context, because I know people are not a fan of the term gypsy. It's not a great term to use. There was this idea at the time that gypsies were people who were roaming around Europe from Egypt, hence the name. And so there again is our Egyptian connection uh, to give herself legitimacy. She even read cards
3: for Empress Josephine using Alliette's deck that he designed. Yeah, there's that famous painting, uh, I think it might be called The Fortune Teller, which is essentially depicting, uh, Lenormand reading in front of Josephine and you have Napoleon, um, to the side. And there's also a depiction of her actually reading Napoleon's cards. But as a tarot expert, Mary Greer notes, it is highly unlikely that she actually did that for Napoleon, but she definitely read for Josephine. And as Greer also notes, it is thanks to this woman that the world really found out about tarot, that it became this big thing. And after she died, oracle decks were published with her name on them. Sort of like a celebrity endorsement. I mean, she was dead, but uh, trading on her name. It's like celebrity perfumes today. Yeah, but dead lady tarot cards. Yeah, totally the same thing. Totally. I'm sure they smelled like something. I tell you what, though, when she was alive, descriptions of her were none too kind. No, no. In 1815... A visitor described her as a monstrous toad, bloated and venomous. She had one walleye, but the other was a piercer, (laughs) which I really enjoyed. She wore a fur cap upon her head from beneath, which she glared out upon her
1: horrified visitors.
3: Yeah, I love it. I love it.
0: So, you know, we've got the origins of tarot, mystic tarot and tarot card reading among these elite men. Right. And as it trickles down, we start to see fortune tellers and card readers being depicted like we talked about in our last episode as as women and as in this case, toad like monstrous women. But I have to give you a little historical side note tidbit. In 1791, there's this book on fortune telling, right? And it's expanded to include chapters on card tossing and also coffee ground reading and its title. And this does tie into the whole gender thing was every lady's own fortune teller or an infallible guide to the hidden decrees of fate being a new and regular system for fortune telling future events, to which is added a new method of fortune telling
3: by the dregs of coffee. So, ladies, you need to pick yourself up a book. Yeah, I mean, and that was something that Mary Greer noted in her very comprehensive history of tarot. Once you get to the 19th century it really was a lady's pastime it was something associated with old women soldiers wives and ladies playing these parlor games. And there's all sorts of artwork mm-hmm. depicting this of women huddled together reading their own cards. Uh, there is an excerpt, um, from Casanova's diaries of talking about, uh, this horribly underaged girl. I think yeah. she was like 13 where he was like, I mean, I was into it, but she was always obsessed with reading her tarot cards you know, to find out if I was gallivanting or not. Well, I thought the description was actually hysterical because he's like, she's so jealous.
0: All she does is put the cards down and point out to me all the ways in which I was like in bed with someone at this place at this time. And I I just I just pictured like this jealous girlfriend. It does ruin the hilarity of the story that she was so young.
3: But 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 by this time, I mean, it's pretty well established that Tarot is a female pastime in a lot of ways that that men would kind of snicker at because it was a lady's pastime. Yeah, that
0: it was scorned by men. And she does point out at her really, really fantastic and fascinating blog that uh, you get this underground at the time of mostly older women who made a good, if precarious, she says, living out of various forms of divination. So we start to see women who perhaps don't have any other way to make money outside of the house. And here they are able in basically sort of an intimate, not too public setting, making money off of the sort
3: of emotional and psychological desires of other people. Which completely relates to our previous episode Mm -hmm. on women and psychics. But we need to move forward in our little timeline to the turn of the century. But first,
1: you guessed it. We got to take a quick break. This episode is brought to you by Snagajob. Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access
2: to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs
1: Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit
2: snagajob.com or text snag to 242-424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode is brought to you
1: by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair
2: bands.
0: So as we move into the 19th and 20th centuries, those secret and occult societies that we talked about earlier are still pretty much dominated by dudes. But you do have groups emerging like the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn and the Theosophical Society, which were co-ed. And I think it's interesting that the Theosophical Society, for instance, even had women among its founders and leaders. But. People in these groups were super fixated on uncovering the quote unquote true tarot and the card's true meanings, which is like, guys, um, like a hundred years ago you invented this. Uh don't know if you realize that it was just a card game in the Arabic world and in Italy. And, and then y- you guys were the ones who made it magical. But
3: they didn't have podcasts back then, Carolyn. How would they know? <laughs>
1: how
0: would they
3: know? But they were
0: so intent on, on buying into this whole thing of like, tarot has a true meaning, uh, and we're, and we're going to find it and we're the holders of this truth. So, so we're going to be a part of, of delivering the true tarot to the people.
3: Oh, but what, I mean, that just opens up a whole occultist playground for you to kind of get to, You know, do what you want and make up whatever connections you want to. Just like a man. (laughs) (laughs) Or woman. These were co-ed They were co-ed.
0: Some of them. There was one very fascinating woman who's been, well, not anymore so
3: much, but at the time was left out of tarot history. Yeah, this is the thing. If you own a deck of tarot cards, there is a very good chance that you have seen the artwork Of Pamela Pixie Coleman Smith, because the most famous deck in tarot history is the Rider-Waite deck, which was printed in 1909 and named for publisher William Rider and popular mystic A.E. Waite. And you might be like, wait, why isn't it the, oh, wait, why isn't it the Rider-Waite Coleman Smith deck, huh? Well, because she was a lady person and an artist. And Waite
0: was a jerk and and pretty much purposely left her name out. But so the Rider-Waite deck is so famous. It's the first mass market tarot deck, which also helped boost tarot's popularity. And again, its intention was divination, not playing those Italian mind games. <laughs> uh, and it even came with a book explaining
3: the meaning behind Coleman Smith's imagery. And imagine what a huge job this is, because Coleman Smith has to illustrate 78 cards in about six months. And her illustrations are notable because her pip cards told stories and the pip cards are those lesser cards, not the ones that are, you know, the fancy, like this is the sun, this is uh, the hermit, etc. <laughs> so all the cards together tell
0: a story. Which again is a great way if you're trying to get people to connect with imagery or connect with a philosophy, this is a great way to do it because- Your pictures tell a thousand words. And so to place all of these amazing illustrations on each card and then to do a tarot formation, it's so easy to tell a story and be able to interpret those images kind of however you or the card
3: reader wants. Well, since I was raised in a household where tarot cards were tools of the devil. Yeah. After college, when my roommates got some tarot cards, it was the first time I'd ever seen tarot cards up close and held them. And I was enamored with the illustrations. And I love thinking about how, oh, I was so blown away by this unsung lady artists work, because, I mean, they really are gorgeous. Yeah,
0: and she has a fascinating story. So she's born in 1878 in London to American parents, and they lived all over, including in Jamaica. And she's such a cutie, if you see pictures of her. But people at the time very, like, euphemistically and quietly questioned her true parenting, basically. They were like, you know, she's awfully dark and queer looking. Perhaps her actual parents are Jamaican. And her parents themselves were very artistic, and under their influence, she ends up joining a touring theater group as an actor, costume maker, and set designer. She's super artistic. She ends up studying art at the Pratt Institute in Brooklyn. She became an illustrator for Yeats, Bram Stoker, and others. And a lot of her personal art, interestingly enough, was a reflection of her synesthesia. So she would listen to these symphonies and then paint. So it results in this swooping, sweeping imagery that's so beautiful. And also, another tidbit of how, like, really cool this lady is, as a member of the group Suffrage
3: Atelier, she puts her art to use for suffrage posters and cartoons. And her talent didn't stop there. She was also a writer publishing several plays and books, including a collection of Jamaican folklore, which she would just go out and recite at events, which uh, kind of blows my mind because... Hello, stage fright. <laughs> um, but I love this excerpt from uh, Brooklyn Life magazine from 1907, which some hipsters should really revive ASAP. Uh, they described her as a gentlewoman presenting an odd type of thoroughly unconventional femininity. And therein lies her greatest charm,
1: which I think is an old
3: school way of saying she's not like other girls. Yeah, she's like the cool girl, but
0: we're kind of suspicious of her because she wears all those billowy garments. Uh, she even started her a magazine called The Green Sheaf, which certainly did have other contributors, but it was mainly a way for her to publish her writing.
3: Oh, like a zine. Yeah. Like a little riot girl. The Green I, Yes. She
0: is. Uh, so her introduction to tarot and creating the cards comes in 1901 when she joined the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, which is where she met A.E. Waite as well as Yates. And Alistair Crowley, that scoundrel who you'll remember from our witchcraft episode, helped this guy Gerald Gardner write a quote-unquote manual for witchcraft rituals. And Crowley was also the future creator of the equally famous Thoth Tarot. Yeah, the Thoth tarot cards are intense. So Coleman Smith's cards are printed with pretty not not that great fanfare. And nobody's really into it because at this point in England, people are still like, "What? what is this French thing? I'm not into this. But it's so great when you read stuff about Coleman Smith because... She was very clear about having her own ideas about how you should prepare to read the cards. The whole thing that 7th grade Caroline went through of like, quiet the mind, think about your question, picture your question, and then flip the cards over. And in terms of her illustrations, the deck itself is clearly inspired by this 15th century Italian deck called the Sola Busca. But they in turn, her illustrations in turn, inspired
3: their own future imitators. And I love this fact. So she used... Her own cat for one of the illustrations. Who I think was named Snuffles. Snuffles. Of course it was. So (laughs) Snuffles inspired future artists and card readers to interpret it as a million different symbols and meanings, which ultimately... It's just Snuffles. Yeah, it's just her cat.
0: She also used her buddy slash potentially lover or companion, Edie Craig, as a model for some of the women on the cards. And so isn't that fascinating to know that here's this person who was like under the gun to create all these beautiful illustrations in six months for very little pay, using her own characters from her own life to create these mystical tarot figures. And people today are still interpreting them and reinterpreting them as these magical, mystical beings.
3: I just love it. But even though her work was so significant, Significant, and she put so much thought into it and people have, in turn, put so much thought into her cards. She was completely left out. She received no mention by name in the book that accompanied the deck and Waite referred to her only as a, quote, young woman artist who'd illustrated the cards based on his instructions. She received very little payment and no royalties. And in one letter to her agent, she even said, I just did a huge project for very little pay. Just basically saying, like, I know. I You know, I'm just just hustling here. And in case you were wondering about the true nature of
0: Wait's uh, character, he indeed was a jerk. He wrote... The practice of painting among women has been clumsily cultivated. It remains a bad imitation of nature, whereas it might be a great art. I'm like, dude, if you are so, like, anti-woman and anti-woman artist, why did you even hire this woman? Oh, could it be because she's actually really
3: talented and you just don't want to give her any credit? And maybe easier to discredit her. Yeah. Mm. But for uh, Coleman Smith's part, she converted to Catholicism and ran a priest's retreat in Cornwall, but then died penniless. In 1951, even though if she had gotten royalties on that deck, she would have been sitting pretty. Yeah, total millionaire. Yeah.
0: The deck ends up falling out of use until about the 70s, when you've got American playing card manufacturer, U.S. Games, I believe it is, who reprinted them. And it was the U.S. Games guy who was saying that Coleman Smith could have been a millionaire today.
3: Well, she's not the only tarot illustrator of note in the late 1930s, Marguerite Frida Harris, a.k.a. Lady Frida Harris met Alistair Crowley at 60 years old and painted the images for his Thoth tarot deck over and over again across five years. I mean, think about that. Coleman Smith did hers in six months. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so Frida Harris is a pretty interesting character. She herself was very wealthy as indicated by the title. Lady. Like, she was doing all right. She didn't need a bunch of money. She also didn't need a bunch of notoriety. Oh, it just wasn't a nickname? She was like, call me Lady. Well, I mean, you've got people like uh, uh Mademoiselle Lenormand, you know, like people who... Not that Mademoiselle is not just a normal French uh courtesy title. <laughs> but you've got people who are really playing up their, like, mystical associations. And But she really was a lady. But yeah, she... And Alistair Crowley had this fascinating correspondence, and they were total buds and BFFs. Uh, in one letter, she told him to basically shut up. She's tired of being his bank. And listen, Crowley, your notes for these illustrations are terrible. You're so stupid. But if you go through their letters and read them, they're very close. They're both in this uh, mystical uh, secret society, and they talk so much about issues of these secret societies and knowledge and truth and religion and all of this great stuff. And they were very, very close. But yeah, like Kristen said, it's crazy to think that she was doing these paintings over five whole years where Coleman Smith had to smush it into
3: six months. And listeners, you have to Google image the Thoth deck if you haven't seen it already, because the art is wild, wild. Uh, Harris used projected synthetic geometry to create these almost like Salvador Dali-esque paintings or illustrations I should say and and they really do look like something out of a sci-fi book.
0: Yeah, they they really do look like because I was looking at the cards and I was like why do these look familiar to me and because they look exactly like Contemporary sci-fi illustrations, like that early sci-fi stuff you see on book covers.
3: I think though, if I had, if I ever tried to use the Thoth deck, I would just get really confused and tired <laughs> because the, the illustrations are so abstract.
0: Yeah, yes. Yeah. And whereas, um, Coleman Smith's illustrations were sort of grounded in that 15th century Italian deck. Uh, Frida Harris's illustrations were just I mean, they were definitely a joint project between her and Crowley. Like he gave her plenty of feedback. It almost reads like a graphic designer client email thread going back and forth. But um, her illustrations were off the chart. I mean, they were something totally different. So obviously, tarot today still plays a huge role in divination, in connections with the occult, but also just in people's day to day lives seeking meaning or maybe seeking some some insight into the world around them but uh sociologist Mike Sesterick who we mentioned earlier has nothing nice to say. He's not into that at all. He's really concerned about how easily people today have taken up tarot ideology that has roots in those Masonic societies, which he said are so problematic because those groups are based in classist, racist, and sexist traditions. He says that those groups not only barred people's participation, women, people of color, people of lower classes, but they also borrow heavily and appropriate from histories and traditions that aren't theirs. So are tarot cards an example of cultural appropriation? According to the sociologist, yeah.
3: Wow. Well, and he also admits that not only tarot, but religion in general persists to fulfill that basic human need of explaining the world around you and kind of relieving our anxieties. So, I mean, there is a, a method to our madness. Yeah. And it's why things
0: like the goddess movement that we talked about in our witchcraft episode can be so powerful. They fill a vacuum, that need for spiritual fulfillment. And they reframe the normal patriarchal structure to one focusing on women. I mean, similarly, you have tarot decks from the 80s, I believe, like Thea's Tarot, which was created by Ruth West. And that's exclusively feminine focused and non-traditional uh, with exclusively women on the cards, some of which are renamed. And then you've got the more recent She is Sitting in the Night tarot book, which is a more recent feminist lesbian tarot book. So you've got stuff that's grounded in Patriarchal Masonic traditions, but being reclaimed. I don't know if I can say reclaimed, but being claimed by women in the 21st century who are pointing it in a totally different direction.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think it's safe to say that a lot of millennial feminists are totally into tarot. There was even, uh, we even have a trend piece to back up our observations. There was a whole thing in Newsweek about it and and they relate it to how Organized religion has declined. Our participation has declined among the millennial generation, especially according to a 2012 Pew study. Um, and the millennials that Newsweek interviewed said that astrology and tarot are their favorite supernatural tools for combating essentially existential angst. <laughs> I mean, that's what I was doing in seventh grade, I guess. Um, There's
0: some theories. Susan Miller, who's an astrologer, tells Newsweek that astrology, for instance, has a very firm structure. And a couple of the people that Newsweek talked to, young women specifically, were like, yeah, you know what? It helps me clarify feelings, my feelings about my uncertain future. It helps me reduce a little bit of that recession anxiety. Not to mention, they talked to one woman who not only used it to alleviate her recession anxiety, but because she was out of a job, she used tarot to make money, similar to Jessa Crispin. So lots of stuff wrapped up in that capitalistic tradition that's passed down from the Freemasons.
3: Yeah, and and yet the thing that I haven't seen an uptick in is elite dudes, or just dudes in general, picking up the tarot deck casually. No, I think it's another thing that's been...
0: Feminized in people's minds that that's some silly magic stuff that old crones
3: do. Well, I'm very curious now to hear from listeners with knowledge of the tarot or any kind of interaction. If we have any tarot readers listening, we want to hear from you. Momstuff at howstuffworks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at momstuff podcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now.
0: i have a letter here from isabella she starts it off by saying in the voice of the worm from labyrinth hello ladies (laughs) hello isabella she says i haven't even finished your podcast on adult acne but i had to get in touch to encourage other listeners to get their hormones checked if they suddenly develop acne in their 20s and 30s As a clear-skinned teen growing up, I was immensely relieved that I didn't have to deal with chronic acne like some of my friends. Don't get me wrong, I got the odd spot, but it was never anything worth complaining about. And so I traversed my teenage years worrying about periods, boys, extra hair, and all those other lovely symptoms of puberty bar acne, for which I was very grateful. Fast forward a few years to the age of 22, working in London alone in a stressful job with a terrible boss, and suddenly spots, spots everywhere. At first, I put this down to stress and some kind of karmic comeuppance, but as the months passed and endless topical treatments failed, I went into a really, really dark place, something I can only see with hindsight. After quitting my job in a blaze of glory, I took my mom's advice and went to an endocrinologist who diagnosed me with polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is fairly common, 1 in 10, and results in a higher androgen level in the blood than normal, which, as you said in your podcast, causes the devil dots. I was put on Yasmin straight away and six months later my skin had cleared up. I'm 27 now. Side note, I switched from Yasmin to another birth control brand due to questions regarding Yasmin's safety and I'm still grateful when I look in the mirror and don't see spots. As you always say, hormones control everything in your body, and no amount of face washing and topical ointments will change what is going on inside of you. Even if for peace of mind, get your hormones checked out if you develop severe adult acne. If it is PCOS, it's amazingly easy to treat and has made a huge difference to my self-image. You both do a great job, and my boyfriend and I look forward to listening to more of your podcasts while I deal with some of his occasional spots. Yep,
3: Kristen, other couples do that as well. Yay! So thank you, Isabella. Well, I've got a letter here from R about our anal sex episode. She writes, I was so delighted to listen to your podcast on the topic of anal sex. I've had a variety of 1st experiences, both positive and negative. As a teenager, I had an underwhelming first experience with a high school boyfriend and shortly afterward experienced an older lover pressuring me to try again. It was when I was in my early 20s and in a long-term relationship with someone that I was comfortable enough to be with to sexually explore that I became one of those who not only has anal often, but absolutely loves it. Well, of course it isn't for everyone. I've found it so enjoyable and intimate, and I've certainly found it improving my ability to orgasm. I was recently talking about this with my best friend, and we've discussed how we each feel confident and like we have full agency over our sexuality when we perform this act. It was so great to be able to listen to a whole podcast about this activity that we both love, And it would be a wonderful thing if everyone who wants to try could do so in a comfortable and enjoyable way. As you said, the statistics on just how many teenagers have such negative experiences is a strong testament to how vital comprehensive sex education is. This is something I have found over and over again in the U.K. When I was pressured to comply as a teenager... I had never been told that I had agency to say no. And I remember overhearing girls at school discussing stories, much like the ones related in the podcast. I'm about to start working with therapists within my old high school to improve the sex education. And I've definitely got a huge amount of information from Sminty. Thank you guys so much for all the amazing work you do. Listening to you always makes me smile. So thanks so much, R. And thanks to everybody who's written in to us. Momstuff at howstuffworks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with links to our sources so you can learn more about tarot cards, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other
2: topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. This episode is brought to you by Pedigree. If you've been looking for love at first sight, it is closer than
2: you think. It can be found at your local shelter. So this June 7th to 9th, join the Pedigree Adoption Drive